Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. And welcome to episode 0000164 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm going to be your host through to eight this evening, broadcasting to you from the soon-to-be-revamped Radio City Docklands, which, as we all know, sits on the Wurundjeri land of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present and any mob that are out there listening tonight, wherever you may be in the country. Uh, and I remind us all that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, tonight on the show, um, a combination of symbolism and practicality. The two both very different, but very important in very different ways. Surely I'll be, enjoying, I'll be joined by Associate Professor and Advanced Accredited Practicing, practicing Dietitian in the Discipline of Population Health at Flinders University, Annabelle Wilson, We'll talk about the practical measures that can be taken to improve interaction between dietitians, nutritionists, and First Nations communities, a critical element in addressing the morbidities and comorbidities so many of our mob have to live with and often die from well before their time in a lot of circumstances. So stick around for that. And in the second half of the show, we'll be talking with uh, Cherie Toka the person responsible for leading a five-year campaign to have the Aboriginal flag sit on top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge permanently. Now, many would be asking, well, what does a symbolic act like that do to improve outcomes for First Nations people? Well, when I hear questions like that, I always ask myself and try and think of the symbolism that is abounds in our daily lives. We have a Governor-General, for instance, which is a symbol in human form, someone that puts their signature to every new law passed in the federal parliament as the representative of a crown in a faraway place. Now, that's symbolism, and it is deemed important. And I could go on and on. I could talk about money. I could talk about uh, courts. I could be talking about systems. But um, if we just stick with the flag for a moment, there have been generations of my mob who have marched through the streets of our towns and cities with that flag, trying to achieve land rights, trying to improve outcomes for my people across a whole range of areas. The flag is a powerful symbol of our ongoing struggle. I mean, has anyone driven past the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service on Nicholson Street and seen the Aboriginal flag at half-mast? That means that there's been a death in the community. And often, more days than not, you'll drive past there and you'll see the flag at half-mast. I, myself, have been to many funerals where the flag has been draped over the casket of a loved one. That's how much it meant to them and how much it means to us. People who have died before their time, before they could see change enacted, the change that they had so long sought after their entire lives. So when we, as First Nations people, see the flag, it means something to all of us. And by placing it on on top of our most iconic constructed landmark, it now has a renewed chance to mean something to all of us. Uh, I've always said that I'm a firm believer that we change this place by changing the story of this place. And by having First Nations people at the centre of those things, no longer at the fringes, is the best way to change this place for the better for First Nations people, at the centre. So, symbolism matters, and we'll talk about that a little later on the show. Triple R. 
Now to tonight's first guest. Take a walk around any community across Australia and you will quickly ascertain that we have an issue with diet and nutrition across the population. This is particularly the case with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as a cohort of the population. A key element in addressing morbidity and comorbidities is through what we eat and what we consume. But have dietitians and nutritionists as a profession done enough to work with First Nations communities to, put, to improve outcomes in this space? After all, the majority of dietitians in Australia are non-Aboriginal people with only 32 individuals of more than 7,500 full members and students self-identifying as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in their profession as of 2020. So our first guest has co-authored an article entitled A Realist Evaluation of a Community of Practice for Dietitians and Nutritionists Working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health. The article is based on a study aimed to understand how a community of practice for dietitians working in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health settings achieved its outcomes as well as what it has, as well as what under, under what circumstances. Um, Annabelle Wilson is an associate professor and advanced accredited practicing, practicing dietitian in the discipline of population health at Flinders University. Her research looks at ways in which health professionals, especially those that are non-Aboriginal, can work best with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and her work also explores how approaches in, to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health can be strengths-based rather than focused on deficits, is so often the case. I'm very happy to say that uh, Annabelle is on the line with us now. Annabelle, welcome to the mission. Hi, Daniel. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Um, thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. Um, before we get into the, the article and, and the study itself, how would you characterise the state of nutritional health across First Nations communities at the moment? Sure. Look, there's no doubt that um, they're working on uh, nutrition in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities is really important. Um, what matters is how we do it. So, as you said, my work looks at making sure that we use strengths-based approaches. Uh, so that means focusing on what's positive in communities, so looking at what is good and what is happening around nutrition, because there's certainly a lot of strength in communities um, and a lot of knowledges, and also making sure that we work with communities to do that too. And so you undertook a, a, a study that was aimed at better understanding what some of the barriers might be, what needs to be done um, from a professional point of view. Um, how did that study come about in the first place? Sure. So this is actually, um, there's a bit, of, a bit of long history to this work. So um, I'm, a, I'm a non-Aboriginal person and I'm a, a dietitian by training. And um, I first started research looking at how non-Aboriginal people, including dietitians, work in Aboriginal health back when I did my PhD, which was about 14 years ago now. And that actually came about from my own practice experience, working as a dietitian in um, Aboriginal communities and, and finding that really challenging. Um, and one of my one of my co-authors on the paper, Robin Delbridge, who's also a dietitian, we uh, we got together, found that we had um, similar experiences, uh, and decided that we wanted to start something um, to assist other people who might be facing challenges as well. And that was when we started Community of Practice. Right, and uh, and 
when when you went out and spoke to to communities, I think you spoke to some twenty nine. I think it was twenty nine, twenty six, twenty nine interviews you had with uh, non indigenous dietitians and nutritionists engaged in communities sort of practice. Yep. What, what what did you find out? Um, so basically, those interviews that we did were with the non-Aboriginal dietitians who participated in community of practice, and um, they looked at th- those interviews looked at those people's experiences. So what benefits they'd got from participating in the community of practice, and we found out that um, simply having that 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 space, if you like, to debrief and talk with peers about their practice led to um, an increased confidence working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the nutrition setting, Um, also led to a greater kind of career retention. So people who talked about wanting to leave the space and not work in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health anymore decided to stay. Um, based on this professional development experience. And um, the the study that we did recently actually found exactly under um, what conditions those benefits were seen. So what what I mean by that is um, we found that when those participants were, uh, when, when they showed commitment and when they were, open and willing to share their stories with others and they actually got that support, um, then they were they were more likely to have those positive outcomes. Because I know a lot of um, uh, health practitioners or any sort of practitioner that, that walk into First Nations communities and start dealing with with mob often feel like they're, they're, they're treading on eggshells a lot of the time um, just because... Well, a lot of the time they actually are. <laughs> um, yeah. But so having so having a community that, that you can come back that there's a safe environment where you can actually talk about some of the lessons that you've come across um, in times uh, dealing with the, with the community has been extraordinarily beneficial. That's right, um, and we also know that particularly for non-Aboriginal health professionals working in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, that there's a real need to be reflexive. So by that, I mean reflect on the the person's own attitudes and biases and approaches to working in Aboriginal health. That's the way that um, they're going to improve and have better practice. And that was really facilitated through that peer network that and that sharing that happened in the community of practice. Is there um, any initiatives underway to to get more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people involved in in the profession? Uh, Yeah, look, that's something that is always trying to be addressed. Um, And you you quoted that statistic at the start. You know, we we do know that currently there there is not a large number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, who who are trained as dietitians. We know that in dietetics and and in all health professions, it's vital to have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, um, you know, in in those roles. We know that. And the other side to that is also ensuring that non-Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people working in the space um, are as upskilled as they can possibly be. 
Yeah. So, what are what are some of the what are, what are, what has been some of the challenges that have been reported back to uh, the, the the communities of support in terms of what are the issues that are facing um, some of the some of these health professionals walk, walking into communities? What what are, what are, what are you, what's the feedback that you're getting back? Uh, so things like a lack of confidence, um, a fear of getting things wrong, yeah. um, you know, a fear of not knowing what to say, um, a fear of, of being perceived as, as being racist. You know, that's certainly come out of, of, of some of my research. Um, you know, so we really kind of go back to basics and say, look, this is about building relationships, you know. You've got to start somewhere. You need to look... The most learning you can do is about yourself and what you bring rather than trying to learn a whole lot of stuff about other people, um, but also really highlighting that non-Aboriginal people need to do the work. So, you know, they need to, to learn about the community that they're working with, be non-assuming, um, you know, ask questions, but not so many that it's that it's a burden. So all of those things, I think, it, it becomes quite complicated and having this, this peer mentoring community practice group to go back to to help, um, you know, address some of the discomfort that's brought up when those issues are raised has really helped people to work through that discomfort and keep working well in the area. Yeah, if I, if I had one bit of advice to anyone going into a community for the first time, it's just never to assume because um, if you assume one thing based on broad statistics or, um, or what you understand about generational trauma or about um, family history or um, your hereditary factors that affect people, if you assume the wrong thing um, or if you're mistaken, then potentially you're feeding into a stereotype and then that's when people are going to get their back up and, and be, be non-cooperative. Has, has that been an experience um, of, of some of the people? Definitely, extremely, and you know I can't stress enough how you know often people come come through through my research. I, I've seen people come to me and say, "Well, I just want you to tell me the one way or the way to work." And I always say, "Well, there is no one way. You've got to let go of that idea. You know, this is about working with people where where they are at, and as as you say, not making assumptions based on your prior knowledge." And experiences. So, getting people to really think about what assumptions they have about working with communities helps to start that process of allowing them to think um, at more deeply about what they are bringing. Yeah. Out of the twenty-nine people that you that you spoke with, was there anything, or is there a common theme that particularly struck you? Um. Yeah, I guess. Well, one thing that, that was interesting and really reassuring was just how committed, I would say, all of the 29 people were, that they all wanted to work um, in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health and they wanted to do it well. They just didn't always know exactly how to how to keep going about that. Um, and, you know, they were all really reassured by, by the community of practice that helped, helped them to keep that, passion and that desire to, you know, work well in the space going. It's a, it's a vitally important um, uh, area uh, without wanting to, to shame anyone, but, you know, I, I, I deal with, you know, a lot of relatives and, and, and people that live in 
um, Aboriginal communities across the country, but also here in Victoria. And um, the, the state of health, people have become used to living with comorbidities and, and used to being sick. And we know that um, uh, diet and nutrition is, is a key element of improving not only life expectancy, but the, but the quality of, uh, of life. Um, Annabelle, what would your advice be to any mob listening at the moment that want to sort of seek help and, and get control of what they intake on a daily basis? How would they go about um, getting um, help? Would visit to a GP first up or...? Yeah, look, I'd say approach a trusted health professional. I think it's important that you're working with someone who you have a relationship with and who you know is going to use the right approach for you. Um, I'd also say don't be afraid to give 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 feedback to dietitians or, or GPs or, or any other health professional who, you know, may be learning about the best way to work in this area. Um, and also I'd say focus on what your strengths are. I think everyone brings strengths and often it's easy to look at what people might be doing wrong in diet, but it's also important to look at what, what is, is being done well as well. Yeah, there's plenty of great work being done by so many people across so many fields. Um, and Annabelle, you're one of them. So thank you so much for coming on this evening. Really appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much, Daniel. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. And to our second guest of this evening. Now, it would be a toss-up between the Sydney Opera House and the Sydney Harbour Bridge as to which was the most prominent landmark in this country's constructed environment. Uh, when people here or elsewhere think or see either landmark, they think Australia. So it's a profound statement when the Aboriginal flag flies on top of the Harper Bridge. And when our next guest discovered that the flag only flew on top of the bridge for 19 days a year, well, she set out to do something about it. Five years later of Tyler's campaigning, and we have a result. Last week, the New South Wales government agreed to have the flag fly atop of the iconic bridge, thanks to no small part to the proud Kamilaroi woman, Sheree Toker. Sheree led a five-year campaign to permanently fly the Aboriginal flag on the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and uh, her campaign via Change.org um, had a petition which was signed by over 170, sorry, 177,000 people, making it the third largest Indigenous rights petition in Change.org slash Australian history. So I'm very pleased to say that uh, Sheree... Uh, the winner is <laughs> on the line with us now. Sheree, thank you so much and welcome to the mission. No worries. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here and share my story today. How, did, how do you feel? I feel amazing. I feel incredibly proud. You know, the Aboriginal flag is a unifying symbol, but it's not just a symbol. It's a reminder the country has a history beyond European arrival. And the people of Australia have a right to learn about the true ancestral past of the country they call home, and hence why I've started this five-year-long journey with a powerful ending. Yeah, um, there was talk, of course, last week that, um, or, or in the weeks preceding the the announcement, that um, uh, a new flagpole on top of the bridge would cost $25 million, and that was um, a prohibitive cost. But they, they've, they've actually found, the New South Wales government has actually found um, a good compromise, haven't they? Yes, they have. Um, well, I, I actually never campaigned to uh, support replacing the New South Wales flag just because mm -hmm. I didn't want to upset anyone, obviously, in the process. All I wanted was to um, 
you know, just reposition the, or add an extra flagpole and reposition the flags into a powerful trilogy, which will hopefully set the example of how Australia needs to unite as an equal nation. However, with flag protocol still, that's something that I'll be working on, working on in the background to change just because the precedence of the Aboriginal flag, the New South Wales flag also has over the Aboriginal flag. Yeah, right. Okay, that's um, that's really interesting and important work. Uh, what what spurred you into action in the first place? And then, not only that, what spurred you into action? But what kept you committed to to trying to enact this change? I think they're two similar but but different questions in a way. Yeah. So I guess the setback was more or less driving me because it was such a simple change. It, it, it could have been achieved overnight. You know, it didn't have to take five years to achieve. Um, I guess that just the resilience within me and not taking no for an answer um, pushed me even further. Just, you know, having a, having a government being the example, um, I think it just should have been done a very, very long time ago prior to... Um, even me starting the campaign, I believe there were others who had started the journey but didn't succeed, obviously. Um, and, yeah, I just, I guess the setbacks were just pushing me to continue and being persistent and consistent prevails. Yeah, they, they got you back up, eh? <laughs> they just made you more yeah. stubborn and, and, and more <laughs> more intent yeah. on trying to get, get this changed. What, what, what were yeah. some of the setbacks and, and why did it take so long? Yeah, so firstly, uh, when the Berejiklian government came in, uh, well, we're in, sorry, they said that um, they were more than happy to hear the views of the community. They got the views of the community with my digital petition at the time when the uh, Berejiklian government was around. It was almost at 150,000 signatures. And uh, then it, was, it, it came down to it being too costly and then that the New South Wales government only followed matters of flag protocol. And then in the end, it became something just out of the ballpark in that having a third flagpole would uh, compromise the structural integrity of the bridge and hence the big $25 million put around erecting a third flagpole. Yeah, well, I mean, the, these things you just don't see, see coming. How, how would... How would I know that um, putting a flagpole on a bridge would uh, affect its structural integrity, uh, for peace sake? But there you go. Now, the New South Wales government has um, committed uh, to spending the $25 million on what would have been a third flagpole on um, Indigenous issues. Um, how confident are you that that will happen? Ah. Uh. I, I can't speak for anyone at the end of the day. I mean, it would be great if we got some reporting analytics um, around what's actually being done and the money that's being spent back into community. But what I am happy that uh, what I am happy about is that um, this very campaign um, has raised that $25 million and that it's being redirected to closing the gap initiatives, which is a mm. result of this came, campaign and perhaps the lack of investment in, I guess, First Nations-focused services such as Aboriginal deaths in custody and raising the minimum age of incarceration will be considered because I don't believe that those um, those issues were mm. considered in the first Closing the Gap initiatives. No. No, they, don't, no, they weren't, and they're too... Um very, very important issues because they have a flow-on effect for generations of uh, Aboriginal people. 
um, across the country. And we live in a first world society and it's just appalling to think that we're locking up 12-year-olds in this country. So um, one of the things... Yeah, black or white, it doesn't matter. It's still yep. it's still a child at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, you've you've undertaken this campaign now. You've garnered uh, a lot of support. One thing that I always try and rally against um, is when people use the um, sim- symbolism versus practicality debate. I, I did a bit of an intro at the top of the show that spoke about how both. Um, are very, very important. You, um, I'd like to hear, Sheree, what, what you think. Why, why is symbolism important if we're going to improve outcomes for our people? Yeah, so having, I feel as though having the Aboriginal flag is a unifying symbol and it will hopefully set the example of how Australia needs to unite as an equal nation. Having an Aboriginal flag and the National Australian flag fly equally on one of Australia's most iconic structures I believe, could set the tone and change the attitudes of people who are opposing the Aboriginal flag being up there in the first instance. Yeah, I, I totally 100% agree with you. By, by putting the flag on such a symbolic, um, sorry, such a prominent landmark, it really puts our stories and, and all the stories that are carried with our flag at, at the centre of things. And, and, and that's, a, that's an opportunity to, to drive discussion, isn't it? Absolutely. And going back to the $25 million being redirected to Closing the Gap initiatives, who knows, maybe that wouldn't have been the monetary value against um, Closing the Gap. So, you know, even even so, it's a it's a win win. We've got the flag on the bridge, and we've got a, a massive, large amount of money being um, directed to closing the gap initiatives. And I think that's a an amazing result. Um, they say, mm-hmm. kill, kill two birds with one stone. I guess. Well done, you. Um, when, when does it come into effect, or has it already come into effect? It's already come into effect. So that must give as of, you a, as of yesterday. That must give you an amazing thrill <laughs> whenever you, <laughs> yeah. you, you spot the flag on top of the bridge. That must just be very, very heartwarming. Yeah, it is. It's like, a, it's like a, I did this, but I did this with the support of so many other people who also wanted to see it fly. So yeah. um, it, it wasn't just me. You know, I may have led the way, um, but the path was already paved for me through my ancestors, my elders and community before me and community right now. So, yeah, um, no, I'm, I'm, over, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. And, you know, having fought for five years um, for, for something that was just so easy by replacing the New South Wales flag, it's, it's a little bit of a shame. It's a, um, it's a letdown by the New South Wales government. But I am happy and I am grateful that it has happened. Well, your um, ancestors and those that came before you would be very proud of you. Uh, it's been a, a long campaign. What what next for you? What else do you want to see changed or you just want to have a breather and think about things for a bit? No, I, yeah, I should probably do some reflecting, but um, I would really like to get into implementing First Nations um, native tongue into school curriculum as a compulsory subject. 
Um, mm-hmm. I think it's really important to keep culture and heritage alive through languages. I mean, you know, having said that, I don't even know my own language and had have I known it or learnt it growing up in school, perhaps I would have wanted to um, endeavour learning it a little bit more um, at a younger age or more so in my 20s rather than now in my 30s. So, um, yeah, I think it's really important and it's going to be a little bit challenging. I know that there are a mob out there right now doing that, um, mm-hmm. but I think it's, it should be mandatory. It should be compulsory. Um, we don't need to be fluent, but it's just, it's you know, you, you see an Aboriginal person, a Torres Strait Islander person, and it, it would be nice to greet each other in each other's languages. Absolutely. Uh, you know, setting the example of how the New Zealanders do it with the Maoris. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I don't think people realise too is that there's so much hidden within Indigenous languages, you know, the the, the, the 500-odd languages that um, sort of scatter the landscape that's now known as Australia. We can actually learn a lot about ourselves and the countries through the understanding of um, those languages. Uh, just before I let you go, um, Sheree, just to let you know that um, people are texting in and uh, we have a text here. Everybody's got something to hide. Oh, that's the wrong one. <laughs> um, Good. <laughs> that's, a, that's a completely different issue. Don't worry about it. But there's, a, there's a text here saying the Indigenous flag should be a normal part on everything and fly fully alongside the Australian flag for everyone. And um, I think that's what you've uh, achieved with this and hopefully... Um, other states and jurisdictions and landmarks will do the same thing. We know here that um, our humble little Westgate Bridge will have the Aboriginal flag flying full time as well, um, probably mm-hmm. influenced by what's been happening up there. But I um, think has caused a ripple effect. Yes. Yep, it's caused a ripple effect. Um, we had it first, but um, let's not get into the Melbourne Sydney rivalry. <laughs> for everyone. Yeah. Um, Sheree Toker, thank you so much for for um, your work and um, stay in touch. We'll um, we'll we'll see how you uh, other things that you're involved in progress along the way. Absolutely, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Um, coming to the end of another episode of The Mission, I'd like to thank my guests, Annabelle Wilson and uh, Sheree Tucker. You can be able to listen back to this show on the website, on demand, rrr.org.au, and I usually segment one of the interviews from each show during the week so you can go back and listen to that or share it with your friends if you want to. I'll be back next week. Until then, stay safe, stay strong, and stay listening. Ta-da! Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.